0: Good morning. How's everybody doing? Welcome to Church of the King. It is October. It is fall festival. It is Reformation month. It's exciting. It's a beautiful fall morning uh, full of God's mercy even in the midst of hurricanes and maybe World War III. There's a lot of things outside of our control but a lot of good news in here. God is in control of everything. We're continuing this morning our verse-by-verse study through the book of Romans, one of the greatest letters ever written. Today, we're finishing Romans 2. Next week, we're taking a break for American Gods, the series that we're excited to to launch in the in-between. Now, this week, we have a lot to cover. Uh, If you're a member here, if you've been here for a while, you know that our sermons are normally 30 to 40 minutes long. Uh, Today, I've got three of those. So... Get ready, to, get ready to go. I am wearing my, my hiking shoes, my trail shoes, and if you're asking the question how long, there's an answer uh, that we give out on the trail. John, what's the answer? As long as it takes just up around the bend, it's just going to keep going, okay? All right, here we go. You guys ready? You guys liking Roman so far? It's pretty exciting, right? We're going deeper than we've ever gone as a church. Things are getting more intense and it's actually kind of really great, right? It's cool. It's what we're here for. We're not a church that shies away from hard things. We're people who, by God's grace, are here for all the hard things that God has to say and Romans has a lot of hard things, right? Romans is doing the work of explaining the world to us, of explaining us to ourselves. That means appearing into the, or, uh, appearing into the abyss of sin and wickedness, right? Okay, that's just what it takes to be real, that's what it takes to be honest, that's what it takes to be real with God, and we wanna be real with God, we wanna be real with ourselves, we wanna love God, we wanna love our neighbor. We can't have rose colored glasses on, that doesn't help anybody. Right? Right? Okay, so we're all in on Romans. What have we seen so far? Well, Romans chapter one, we all know. We know all of us that deep down, God is God. And we're not. We all know that deep down. We all know that we've suppressed the truth that God's God and that we deserve His wrath. His wrath comes to us first in the form of giving us over to our sin, and then finally, enough is enough, and then He deals out further judgment. We've also proven that everybody wants justice, right? And we know that because we are angry at the injustice of the world. We know things aren't right, we know things aren't fair. We know that when they're not right, we want them to be made right, and that's how we know we actually believe in the wrath of God. We believe that things ought to be right and fair. We know that God is ultimately the one who decides what's right and fair, and that because God loves us in the world he's made, he's rightly angry at every wrong to the people he made and loves, right? We come to Romans chapter 2, and we discover, well, if we think we're better than people who have been given over to their sin... That just makes us guilty of being judgmental jerks and hypocrites, and that makes us worse because we still do all the same things. We're just better at hiding it. We're all really judgmental people. We know the world isn't right, we know we're not right, it doesn't feel fair, we want justice, we want it now, we want it on our own terms, just so long as it doesn't include us, right? But that's how, part of how we know we actually believe in justice and that we want justice beyond this life justice isn't justice unless the punishment fits the crime. Stalin and Hitler getting the same punishment, the same end as a housefly is not fair. It's not just. So we have to reconcile the fact that bad people don't seem to get what they deserve. Good people, at least good people by our standards, sometimes get dealt a bad hand. That doesn't feel or seem fair. The atheist says, well, too bad. That's just the way it is. There's no accounting for it. There's no God, and I hate him. The Bible says, no, that's not the way it is. The reason that the earth is still spinning is not because of some capricious, chaotic, senseless force out there. It's not still spinning with its injustices because God's not just. It's still spinning because there's a God who's in control, and he is patient with each and every one of us. At the end of the day, what we all deserve is his wrath. Because unlike a harmless, annoying housefly, we're made in God's image. We are aware of who he is, we know who he is, we know what he commands, and we know that we have rebelled against him. We know that we've made war on him. And if a fly deserves death for being annoying, and we bear his image, what do God's image bearers deserve for making war on God? something worse than the house fly gets, that's what. And that means that every breath we get, every beautiful fall day is a demonstration not of God's wrath, which we deserve, but of his grace and mercy and kindness because he desires that everyone would repent and be reconciled to him. Which means not that justice isn't coming, but that now is a time of mercy. And when justice comes, it will be more than deserved. Every beautiful fall day that goes by without acknowledging God, without gratitude, without repentance, is a day that we are presuming on God's kindness and mercy. It's a day that we spit in the face of his love. And therefore, unless we do repent, it's a day that we end up storing up more wrath for ourselves. Today is not a day of wrath. Today is a day of salvation. The good news is that Jesus, the eternal son of God, bore the wrath we deserve on himself. He died on a cross, God poured out the just payment for every sin, every crime and every failure on him and because he is the eternal son of God, he was able to bear it and triumph over it. He died, he was buried, he rose three days later from the grave, he bore it all on himself and now our job is to believe that God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son so that everyone who believes in him would not perish but inherit eternal life and then to go proclaim that from the mountaintops while there is still time before justice comes. Why? Because everybody knows that God is God. Everybody knows that we've not measured up. What they don't know is that God has made a way to be reconciled to him. They don't have to fight against God anymore or against their consciences. They don't have to push the knowledge of God deep down and try to hide from it because there's hope. There's forgiveness and it's in Jesus and it's there for everyone who believes. So what Romans is doing is proving to us that each one of us in our own special way really does need Jesus because none of us are righteous. So Paul, as he's writing in Romans 1, started with those of us who simply reject God and say, we don't need righteousness, we don't want it, we wanna be rebels, we like sin, okay? Heathens, pagans, we rebel, we like it. We don't want God, we don't wanna be righteous. So Romans 1, and so we're all like, yay, beat up on those people from Bloomington and San Francisco and Washington, D.C. And then Paul's like, wait, 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 hold up. Yep, those people are bad. That's you guys today, I guess, okay? You're the heathens. You guys are, the, are, are, are part two here, right? Yay, they are heathens. And Paul says, hold up, those people are bad. Being judgmental makes you worse. Being judgmental makes you worse. Okay, now this week, as we continue Romans 2, this is what happens. We're like, oh no, but I'm not actually judgmental. I'm a Christian. I understand God's law. I'm being discerning. I'm, I'm, I'm figuring out obedience. And he's like, yeah, well, uh, guess what? That only makes it worse. The noose gets tighter. He's gonna cut off that escape too. He's just gonna keep doubling down on us until we see that what we need is Jesus. So here he goes, Romans chapter 2, beginning in verse 12, kind of in verse 11. God shows no partiality. That's where we ended last week. 2 verse 12. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. "'even though they do not have the law. "'They show that the work of the law "'is written on their hearts "'while their conscience also bears witness "'and their conflicting thoughts accuse "'or even excuse them on that day "'when according to my gospel, "'God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. "'But if you call yourself a Jew "'and rely on the law and boast in God "'and know his will and approve what's excellent,' Because you're instructed from the law and if you're sure that you're a guide to the blind and a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? And then he goes on from there. We'll finish that passage today, but let's just stop and ask why. Why is he doing this? Why is he going so hard? The answer is so that we have no escape. But why? Is he just mean? The dude has no chill, like he cannot relax. He's just gonna keep trying to corner us. He wants us to see that we all need Jesus. Everyone needs Jesus all day, every day, every second of every day. We never outgrow our need of him, we never become so good that we can stand on our own. And the good news is that Jesus is for everyone. But you don't get Jesus if you don't think you need him. And we're sneaky. And we would rather be righteous on our own than depend on Jesus. So there's a progression to this. Do you guys see it already? It works like this. You start as a pagan. You reject God's righteousness. The minute God calls you on it, you become a judgmental jerk. Okay? Because you try to separate yourself from other people. And the minute you're called on your judgmentalism, you move into a self-righteous sort of hypocrisy. Heathen. Judgmental jerk, self righteous hypocrite. You guys are the hypocrites today. You're the judgmental jerks and you're the heathens. Just the way it's going to be. Okay. But this is the way it is. I hate righteousness. Well, you're less righteous than I am. Well, I'm more righteous than you are. Heathens sin, judges deflect, hypocrites hide. One leads to the other. And we can see it happen in our homes. We can see it happen at school. We can see it happen in our jobs. Heathens encourage participation in heathen things. Remember what it says? They approve of those who do the same. Come sin with me. Come to the party. Come along. Let's drink. Let's fornicate. Let's get high. Let's be idiots. Judges encourage hiding, hypocrisy. It's what we talked about last week. When you create a critical judgmental culture that doesn't distinguish between sins and mistakes, you create hiding. You create hypocrites. So if you're so intense that you demand perfection, what you communicate is, I can't be pleased, which really communicates, you better be really good at being really sneaky. Make sense? That creates hypocrisy. Hypocrites encourage rebellion. Heathenism just goes all the way back around to the beginning, because hypocrites disgust everyone with their lies. They communicate that it's impossible to walk in real godliness, when their lies get called out. It just encourages rebellion. People living under hypocrites at home or on the job get disgusted with pretense, with lies, and it's a vicious cycle. So if you're a heathen at heart, your kids will be too. If you're a judge, your kids will be hypocrites who hide. You won't know what they're hiding until it comes out. And if you're a hypocrite, your kids will become rebels every chance they get because they'll see through your lies. (sighs) How do we step out of it? Well, if you love God, if you live in the light of God's love in the light of his grace and kindness and patience, you can step out of it. You just have to come to Jesus and admit that it's okay to not be perfect. It doesn't take much. You just have to be real in your affection, in your repentance. Apologize when you sin, deal with your hypocrisy, repent of your judgmentalism, ask forgiveness of your wife, of your husband, of your kids, of your employees, of your boss. Make it clear that we all need Jesus here. We're not trying to be perfect, we're just trying to grow. We're just trying to love like Jesus, to walk like Jesus, to live together as Christians who love Jesus. Sometimes we can embody this progression, heathen, judge, self-righteous, hypocrite, all at once, or really quickly in succession, right? Our kids can do this sort of thing. Hey, come with me. Let's go do the sinful thing. Oh wait, you're taking it too far. I'm gonna tell mom, right? Bam, 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 all at once. There's a really great example in scripture of this kind of progression that shows how we do this ourselves. Everybody know the story of the woman at the well? Yes, no, maybe? Great example of this sort of thing. In John chapter four, and you can turn there if you want, but you don't have to we have a woman who's given over to her sexual brokenness and sin. She's coming to draw water from a well in the middle of the day. You don't come to the well in the middle of the day. The reason you don't come in the middle of the day is because it's hot and a bunch of people have been stirring up the muck of the well and so the water's not clean anymore. So you have to deal with the heat of the day and you have to deal with water that's just been mucked up, okay? You don't come in the middle of the day. So why would you come in the middle of the day? Because you don't wanna be around the other women. That's why. Why would she not want to be around other women? Because she has a reputation. They don't like her. She doesn't like them. She has a reputation for sexual sin. Jesus shows up and he asks her for a drink. She's surprised that he would have anything to do with her in the first place. And he says, if you knew who I was, you'd ask me for a drink. And I'd give you living water. Okay, here's the heathen at the well. This is gonna become a judge right away. Wait, who do you think you are? You're not greater than our father who built this well. Like, what do you, who do you think you are? Just judging Jesus. He says, if you drink the water I have to give you, you'd never be thirsty again. Well, that's interesting. That's intriguing. She wants to know more. Okay, fine, give me a drink. He says, sure go call your husband. She's like, I don't have a husband. He says, you're right. You've had five husbands. And the man you're sleeping with now, he's not your husband either. Okay. She went from a heathen to a judge. Guess what she's going to become next in the same conversation? A theologian. She's going to become a theologian. Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Well, our fathers say to worship on this mountain, but your fathers say to worship... She's going to pose a theological question. She went from the heathen in the middle of the day to who do you think you are to let's talk theology the minute he put his finger on her sin. Let's talk theology. Let's pick a fight over doctrine. There's a lesson here. This is just what we do. This is who we are. We will dig deep into theology and become Bible nerds in order to hide our sin and hypocrisy. We are that twisted. That's why it's next in the list in Romans. If you rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what's excellent, if you're sure you're a guide to the blind and a light to those in darkness and an instructor of the foolish and a teacher of children, why? Because dealing with our heads is easier than dealing with our hearts. It provides cover. It provides protection. It provides defense. Someone who's hurt and feels powerless, cornered, will develop defense mechanisms. She was cornered. You're right. You don't have a husband. You've had five. The man you're sleeping with now, let's talk theology. It's a defense mechanism. Let's talk about the Bible. I perceive that you're very... Have you seen this before in other people? One of the people who did the most to set me on a good trajectory for studying the Bible... Thinking deeply about the things of God was a youth pastor who was sexually involved with three girls in the church. Theology is a great cover. Teaching was a great cover. When I was in college, one of the most interesting, inquisitive, theologically and philosophically brilliant people I've ever known, interesting to talk to people, was literally sleeping with his brother's wife and he ended up dying a few years later from a heroin overdose. Years later, I was talking to a pastor friend about the most interesting and engaging and theologically challenging person that he had when he was uh, starting the church that he was starting. He's telling me about this guy and about how it came out later that that man was preying on his daughter and sharing her with his friends. And same family as the guy in college who died of the heroin overdose. Same family. Two generations. Years later, that daughter showed up at church with a husband who was, guess what? Very bright, very inquisitive, very theologically engaged. Guess what? Broken people who are intent on hiding instead of dealing with their brokenness find each other and the pattern repeats itself. And he was preying on his son's. We reported him. His wife divorced him. And guess where one of his sons is now? In jail for the same thing. Three generations. Three generations of refusing to deal with sin. Of hiding behind theological sophistication. Of all the places in the world they hid, they hid in the church. We will reject God. We'll be given over to sin. We'll get called out will become judgmental, and when cornered, will become theological, and we will hide, and people will let us off the hook. Anything to avoid dealing with our hearts, anything to avoid dealing with our baggage, anything to avoid dealing with the muck of sin we suppress. We think if we just let it settle to the bottom of the well and really develop our fronts and our masks and our defenses and our protections, it's just going to all settle and go away. That's not how it works. We push it deep down and think it's good enough, and we end up playing whack-a-mole. So, depravity gets pressed down over here, and judgmentalism pops up over there. And that gets pressed down, and it pops up as self righteous hypocrisy, and then it just keeps going. And it never stops because we're not dealing with ourselves before God. And it will come back, and it will get pushed down the line, and it's a question of time. We'll pass it on to our children to deal with, just like that family three generations of hiding. Three generations. Of refusal to deal with what lies at the bottom of the well. Here's another example of how it works. We get legalistic and controlling with the people that we love and care about the most. It's reflexive. We want to protect them. We're afraid because we've been hurt. So in your home, your judgments and your self-righteous rules will be a reflection of your pain. They'll be a reflection of your trauma. They'll be a reflection of your regrets. The things that you haven't dealt with. Why? Because they're painful and you want someone to blame so you don't have to feel the pain. But what's really going on? What's really going on is you're judging God for letting you down. That's what. You're blaming him. You're deciding you'll play God and do a better job than he did. You'll up the game. You'll be more protective and restrictive and judgmental and legalistic and here's the truth. If you're not careful you will succeed only in making your kids just what you are. And that means you'll be responsible. Just make... The study of theology bad, scary, no, no. It just shows us how tricky our hearts are. It shows us how wicked our hearts are. We will hide anywhere, we'll hide anywhere. A good pastor doesn't let us hide, Paul's a good pastor. A lot of pastors are content with pulling us out of our heathenism and judgment, into judgmentalism. Some are content to pull us out of that into self-righteous pride. Paul is not content. He wants to force us to deal with Jesus and with our own hearts. And that's what he's doing. Theology's good. We turn to theology because we love God. We want to know God. We want to know his word. We want to grow. It's just what a love of God does. We study the things we love. We get to know the people we love. God's character is revealed in the Bible. We study it. It teaches us how he wants us to live. We want to know. We want to study. A husband who doesn't study his wife doesn't actually love her, right? Right? you ought to know what makes your wife tick. You ought to know what she likes and what she doesn't like. Same with your kids. It's not bad, it's good. But here's what happens. We study the Bible, we start to see how holy God is and how bad we are and the distance between the two, and it gets scary and it hurts. The muck of our lives starts to get stirred up. God does this because he wants to draw it out of us. An analogy that he uses in scripture over and over and over again is the process of refining silver. He heats up, you heat up silver and the dross, the impurities rise to the top and you gotta take them away. But the heat's painful and that's what happens when we deal with God as we study the Bible and as we come to church and as we live our lives together. The heat comes on, impurities rise to the surface and we have a choice. Hide from the heat Or deal with the dross and if we're not careful we will be tempted to hide from the heat by filling our heads with knowledge of the Bible we'll fill our heads so we don't have to deal with our hearts so that we have some kind of plausible deniability and we'll miss the whole heart of the Bible in the process we'll miss the whole point what's the point well the point is love that's what Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment was his answer is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Seconds like it, love your neighbor as yourself. When God says no in the Bible, he's not merely being restrictive like some kind of helicopter parent. He's teaching us what love is not. What love does not do, the aim is love. Guess what love doesn't do? It doesn't murder, it doesn't commit adultery, it doesn't lie, it doesn't covet, it honors our mother and father, it doesn't worship demons, it worships the one true God in spirit and truth the way that he's required of us. It's the Ten Commandments and it's written on all our hearts. It's called having a conscience, and that's what Paul's talking about here in Romans 2. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness. Everyone has a conscience. Everyone has God's law written on their hearts. Everyone still violates their conscience. It's just how bad we are. You believe murder's wrong, but you're angry. You believe adultery's wrong, wrong, but you lust. You believe in an objective standard of morality You have no hesitation applying it to everyone around you. We've already established we all wanna just be little judges, right? It's the great conundrum for atheists. Can you be good without God? They need a handle, they need a standard, they need a reason for holding to some kind of objective morality, otherwise we can just do what we want, achieve the ends that we want and that's why the atheistic movements of the 20th century led to so much bloodshed. There's a world full of people who say they don't believe in God, they don't believe in objective truth, they don't believe in objective morality when they feel wronged or like something is wrong in the world, their conscience still cries out though. And what their conscience is doing in that moment is just outing them, just saying, yes, the truth of God is still written on your heart. You've just suppressed it, it's still there. There's a world of people who've tried to deal with the problem, where does our conscience come from? Well, it can't come from God, it can't be universal, it must be a product of society. It must be cultural, it must be from our parents, but here's the problem. You'd be hard pressed to find any culture or civilization or society that doesn't acknowledge the same basic standards. It is in fact universal because God has put it on all of our hearts. Your conscience is a gift. It protects you, it testifies to God. If you let it, it will drive you to Jesus. The Holy Spirit is kind and gracious that way. Or you can callous, callous your conscience You can harden it. Some of you, kids, some of you have made a decision to harden your heart, to callous your conscience, to try to kill it in certain places because it gets in the way, because it makes you feel bad about things you wanna do or things that you do with your friends, things that you know are wrong. It is possible to callous your conscience. There's nothing more dangerous or deadly If you're tempted to do that, you need to step back and ask yourselves, why? Why would you be tempted to make your heart hard to God? Why? And is it worth it? Friends, being cool, it's not worth it. What will it get you? Trouble. And in the end, judgment. Okay. So, heathen desires, judgmentalism, self-righteousness. Now, there are three levels to our self-righteousness, okay? So there's like level, like, here we go, heathen, judgment, self-righteousness. Now, three levels to our self-righteousness in today's passage, okay? Level one, being a hearer instead of a doer. Being a hearer instead of a doer. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they're a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. The biggest problems we have in the church are not in Washington, D.C., they're not in Bloomington, they're not in San Francisco, they're here. And they're from people who think they know their Bible but don't because it's in their heads and it's never transformed their hearts. Here's what God says, they are hearers but not doers. And the more you hear, the more you understand, the more you claim to understand, the more responsible you become to live according to what you know the more accountable God will hold you, the more guilty God will find you if you refuse to be transformed, if you refuse to obey what you've learned. Remember Jesus, love God, love your neighbor. You've not actually heard or understood the Bible if you're not a loving person. You've not understood the Bible if you're not a loving person. If you don't love your husband, if you don't love your wife, if you don't love your kids, if you don't love your neighbor, you've not understood the Bible. It doesn't matter what you think you know. You're a hearer and not an obeyer, not a doer. If you don't love, you haven't begun to walk in obedience to God. Here's a test, would your husband, would your wife, would your kids, if they were being really honest, say they feel loved by you? Yes, there's a difference between loving someone and making them feel loved, but you know what real love does? It makes itself felt and known. Even when it's tough love, if you cannot or will not do the bare minimum when it comes to loving your family, can you say you love God? Well, God says no, actually. First John makes it crystal clear that loving God and loving our brother go hand in hand. Second commandment is loving our neighbor. Who's a closer neighbor than your, the members of your own house? Do you love your family? Do you love your neighbor? Love has to radiate out. To give in to being a heathen, being a critical, judgmental jerk, a self-righteous Pharisee, you're not loving. The point of the Bible is love. The point is obedience. The point is that we would bear fruit.: Some of us love that part of Ephesians. It says, "For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast." Beautiful, beautiful statement of God's work. What's the next line? For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We're not saved by our good works. We are saved to them, but we're saved to them. That's the point. That we would be transformed, that we would be changed, that we would do the good works God prepared for us to do. If we don't, what does it mean? It means we've never been transformed, that we don't know God because to know him is to love him and to know his love and to know his love is to be transformed by his love so that we love others as he first loved us. Here's versus doers, level one. Level two, talkers versus walkers. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent because you're instructed from the law, And if you're sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. Okay, here's what's going on. We have hearers and doers. This is the next level up. You're not just a hearer. You're now a teacher. You talk the talk, but you don't walk the walk. You preach, but you don't practice what you preach. You're a talker who's confident. You understand what's going on in the world. You understand the Bible better than anyone. And here's what he says. Okay, you preach against stealing. Do you steal? You preach against adultery. Do you look at porn? Do you love your husband or wife? Are you faithful? Do you practice what you preach? Be careful. There are levels to this, right? Heathen, judge, hypocrite, hypocrite who hears, hypocrite who teaches. There are also levels to God's judgment. You can be judged by your conscience. You can be judged by your conscience and your knowledge of God's word. You can be judged by your conscience, your knowledge of God's word, and by the standard of your own teaching. James says, not many should presume to be teachers because you'll be judged more strictly. Be careful about telling other people how to think and how to live. Not saying don't teach, saying look to yourself first. Jake, you're still up there talking. I know, it's scary. Do you wanna be up here? Where there are many words, there's much sin. Do you wanna be judged by the standard? Some of you think you do. It's why we have to be careful in the church about promoting people into teaching and preaching and leadership positions. We don't want to set anyone up for failure. We don't want to set anyone up for a judgment they can't bear. We have three men exploring the possibility of pursuing pastoral ministry. We're gonna be careful. We have to be. As a church, we want to be the same way about calling men to serve as elders and deacons. Better to take our time than rush into things. We want men who preach first to themselves, they're striving to deal with their own sin and hypocrisy and self righteousness. It's what we want. It's what you'd better hold me to. I need your help with that. We want leaders who deal with their own hearts and who lead their own families, who are getting their own house in order before they start trying to lead God's family. If we don't do that, they'll become the kinds of men that cause God's name to be blasphemed, like the youth pastor like the dad, like the brother, like the son. And we will all bear some responsibility for that. That doesn't mean that we won't screw up, it doesn't mean we won't get things wrong. Our job isn't to get everything right, it's to do a good job of trying to get everything right and repenting and correcting and changing course when we screw up. Okay, hearers instead of doers, talkers instead of walkers. This last one's kind of forced, ready? Signallers instead of havers. That's not as clean. Level three. All right, verse 25. For circumcision, oh boy. Circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man but from God. Yay, circumcision. All right, you guys notice we have a lot of Jew-Gentile stuff going on in this passage, right? Okay, here's basically what's going on. In the early church, you have the Jews who are God's covenant people. They grew up with God. They grew up with the Bible. They grew up with God's promises. They were visibly set apart by, as God's people by the sign of circumcision, okay? And then you have this new thing that God's doing. He's bringing in the Gentiles to come and join the family. He's grafting them in. It's never happened before. We'll talk about that more when we get to Romans uh, 9, 10, and 11, okay? But this is a new thing. These Gentiles who don't know, haven't grown up with God, are being grafted into the church. So you have essentially the Jews who are the churchy Bible people, okay? And you have these new believers who are coming in off the streets, and that created a lot of conflict because why? Because we are all judgy, and we're all hypocritical, and this is just boring, normal church stuff. And so you have the Bible people, and they have an advantage over the people who are coming in off the street, and that's all we've been talking about okay? Talking about circumcision is just talking about the next level of self-righteousness. You hear the Bible, but you don't obey it. You teach it, but you don't practice what you preach. You don't walk, you talk. The third level is you got the sign, but you don't have the reality that it signifies. You've got the t-shirt. You've got the necklace. You've got the tattoo. You've got the outward appearance of a superior righteousness, but you don't have a transformed heart, okay? we understand this sort of thing, right? There's a kind of person who's like, wants to project his wealth, so he goes out and goes into debt and buys a Rolex and then goes out and buys, what's the, was, I thought I saw Lucas here this morning. He was gonna tell me what the cool car was or whatever. He goes out and buys the cool car and he's not actually wealthy. He's signaling he has a lot of wealth, but what he actually has is a lot of debt, right? Doesn't have it. He's got all the signs, but not the reality. There are social media superstars who project strength or health or wealth or heroism. They don't have it. One signals their righteousness and is a master at signaling it. The other actually has the real thing. The early church fought a lot about who was really signaling their true commitment to God. Circumcision was one of those key battlegrounds, okay? It was how you showed you were really committed to obeying God's law. It was a standard that was set up Right, Paul would go and plant a church and then a bunch of people would come in and say, well, actually, if you wanna really show your righteousness, righteousness, y'all need to get circumcised. No, it's not the standard. It's not the standard. But here's the thing, we are always in danger of setting up our own standards, our own ways of signaling our superior righteousness. They're usually over matters of conscience or matters of interpretation. We take a hard line on something, we feel superior to everyone else around us who fails to signal their righteousness like we do. And the Jews felt that. They were socially isolated because circumcision was weird. It set them apart. So they wanted everybody else to join them in their weirdness, right? And have the signal of righteousness. In the church, we have all kinds of ways we try to signal our superior righteousness to other people, right? And different churches have different standards and signals. Do you speak in tongues? Have you accepted John Calvin into your heart? Hey, how do you educate your kids? What's your take on alcohol? How do you signal your superior righteousness? God says, you've got all the outward marks, but how about your heart? Okay, what's the summary? We start out, we're cool being a heathen. That's why we join the crowd. We draw others to join the heathen crowd. When that's not cool, we become judgmental. We wanna find a righteousness of our own that simply compares well to other people so that we can look and feel good about ourselves. We start by tearing other people down and judging them to be beneath us. When that fails, we wanna become ultra-righteous so we can prop up our own goodness. We wanna list, we want boxes to tick. I've got it in me, I listen, it comes out of me, I teach, and I'm signaling it. I've been there, I've done that, I've got the T-shirt. Look at me. And what binds all of that together? It all has to do with people, that's what. It all has to do with people. It all has to do with the praise of men, how we look compared to everybody else. I don't care. Well, I'm comparing you to me, and i got to make you worse than me, and now I'm comparing me to you, and i got to look better than you, and I've got to—and God says, stop. It's not about them. It's about me. It's about you and him. It's about your heart. We forget that it's God who looks at us and he doesn't look at the outward appearances. He looks at the heart. So what do we need? What we need is a new heart. Whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, whether you grew up in church or not, whether your family goes back to generations of godliness or whether you walked in off the street, we all know we don't live according to God's law completely. We don't even live up to our own consciences. We know that's a problem. What we need is a new heart. No one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Before Jesus came to the woman at the well, a man, a Pharisee named Nicodemus, came to him at night, a self-righteous man, a man who knew God's word, who taught God's word, and Jesus said to him what? Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus was surprised. Jesus said, are you the teacher of Israel and yet you do not understand these things? And then this is what comes next. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. but whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. All we're doing, all Romans one is doing, shining the light and like the the inner cockroach of our heart just kind of runs to the next little bit of darkness and he just kind of keeps shining the light. Don't love your evil deeds, come to the light. Don't be afraid, don't hide. Don't give yourself over to your desires, don't become judgmental. Don't hide behind a wall of self-righteous pride that protects you from facing the truth. Come to Jesus. He came to save sinners, not to condemn, but to save those who stood condemned. So now we have the privilege of celebrating the Lord's table together. This is a picture of what Jesus has done for us. Listen to what God's word says to us through the Apostle Paul in First Corinthians chapter 11. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. The same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This table is for baptized believers in good standing of a Bible-believing church. It doesn't have to be this church. But you must be walking with Jesus. You must be walking, desiring to live out a transformed heart, not living in unrepentant sin, turning away from your evil desires, turning away from your judgmentalism, turning away from your self-righteousness, okay? If that's you, if you're a sinner and you know it and you belong to Jesus, and you want to come to him, come to this table. And as you eat the bread and as you drink the wine or grape juice, Ben, help me, which is which? Grape juice outside, wine inside. So we have both. Grape juice is the outer ring, wine is everything inside. Okay? As you come, understand that God's grace and mercy and kindness to you are more real than the bread, more solid and strong. More potent than the wine or grape juice. Okay, Let's pray. Father, we do pray that you would have mercy on us. We thank you for giving us your word. We thank you for the book of Romans and the ways that it finds out our sin and forces us to come to Jesus. It is a relief to not have to hide. Help us, Father, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.